0: A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and you have never disobeyed your command, and yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends." But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O
2: Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think about this remarkable story that Jesus uh, spoke in his day and leaves for the church to think about, that you would meet us by your Spirit and you would open our ears that we would understand the things that you're trying to say to us this morning. So guide us in this time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of of my favorite authors, many of you know if you've been around City Church for any length of time, is Flannery O'Connor. And she said of her writing um, that all of my stories are about the action of grace on a character who is not very willing to support it. I love that statement, Um, and if you've ever read one of uh, O'Connor's short stories, you know exactly what she means because she had this brilliant and honestly bizarre way of leading us into the spaces where uh, cultural and religious biases and self-righteousness are very often exposed and seen for what they are. Um, And very often what is discovered is that grace is showing up in places that these figures, these characters, don't expect it or anticipate it or even want to. They're not willing to support it. Uh, And so you read these stories. The parables of Jesus function in a very similar way. They are stories that Jesus used to illuminate uh, the way in which you and I hold on to false narratives, false reality, our own illusions about the way life is or the way we think it ought to be or about God himself. And Jesus tells these stories to shake us up so that we'll see some things differently. We'll enter the story and maybe become persons that are willing to support the grace of God. It's operative and being revealed in the world and in our very lives through Jesus. That's the aim. Now, the parable of the prodigal son that we just read, that Laurel just read, is among one of the most well-known of jesus's parables It gets cited all of the time Uh, and so i want to think about this story but as we do so i just want to sort of suggest that if you are familiar with it and many of you are that one of the challenges for us when we read really any part of scripture is that our knowledge can get in the way now that's a weird thing for someone to say right you know i'm not opposed to knowledge i think it's great to study it's great to know things But very often when we take up a text that's familiar, it's so easy for us to fall into the habit of saying, I I got it. But the point of a parable is that you and I wouldn't say, I've got it, but rather that we would begin in some fresh way to explore the thing that Jesus wants us to explore. So let's sort of move through this. So what triggers this story, right? So if we were to have started our reading at the very beginning of the chapter, we would have read just very simply this. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the trigger for the story that Jesus is telling, this story of of, of, of the prodigal son Uh, The trigger is the religious leaders and the experts, they're grumbling their complaints uh, against Jesus, and specifically their complaint that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. In other words, Jesus is constantly, as you read through the gospel stories and accounts, he is always near the wrong people, at least in the eyes of the religious leaders, right? That's that's where we find him. These are the persons that are drawn to Jesus, that are curious about Jesus. And as Jesus disrupts the status, sort of the status quo, the taken for granted world of the religious leaders who have very settled thoughts on on things like holiness, or what does it mean for me to be a faithful follower of Yahweh, Jesus is always disruptive of that, um, and they always begin to grumble. Their knowledge about Scripture and theology, their reflections on faithfulness begin to get in the way of, what, of their own discernment of what God is revealing now in the person of who Jesus is. And so right after this particular moment of grumbling, Jesus tells three parables in a row. He tells the story of, of the lost sheep and the shepherd who finds that sheep and, he, and his excitement He tells the story of a woman who loses a coin and goes searching around the floor for the coin, finds the coin and is excited because she found the coin, and then lands in this extended story of the prodigal son. Now, we call this the story of the prodigal son because one of the highlights of the story is that someone who is lost is found. That someone who's lost to their family, to their father, comes home again, right? And so there's a lot of beauty inside of this story, of that space of if you've ever known yourself to be just sort of out of it, sort of way, way away from God, and you turn, right? There's an excitement of hearing the story of the return home, but the parable is, is as much and maybe really more about the hidden moral failure of the older brother. And it's that hidden moral failure that is particularly pertinent to a religious community like our our own, like the church. Eugene Peterson, as he's commenting in his work where he's looking at the parables of Jesus and in this particular parable, he says that self-righteousness, religious self-righteousness, is the unique sin of the church. Self-righteousness is the unique sin of the church. It is, it is our unique and insidious moral danger, if you will, right? It's, it's not that we don't struggle with prodigal-type sins, you know? I mean, we could, you know, you, if you were to sort of get near someone and you sort of revealed your own personal struggles, your, your, your life story to them, there would be prodigal elements to that story, almost certainly across the board. But there's a uniqueness in the way we live with our knowledge of God, even our knowledge of Jesus, our knowledge of Christian theology, our study of Scripture, our practice as being religious. We come to church regularly. We read the Bible regularly maybe. We pray or we at least attempt to pray with regularity. There's a unique struggle that could surface for us as we become so familiar with God that we, become, we begin to relate to him in an entitled way. And that's what Eugene Peterson is talking about, that we struggle with self-righteousness. Now, so think about the story that Jesus tells and what it might have to say to us today about our struggle with self-righteousness. So inside the story, there are two opposite ways of struggling with God, right? They're very different, they're divergent paths, right? The younger son takes the sort of the wild path of living as far away from sort of the morality of his community as he possibly can, and the older son stays safely embedded inside of his community, honoring all the moral codes, sort of living externally, sort of doing all the right things that would have been expected of this Jewish man inside of that cultural space. But what we discover in the story is that both sons are lost. Both sons live out of connection with God, out of connection with their father. The younger son flees the father, the elder son stays back, right? The younger son wants nothing to do with his father, his household, his community, the land, the religion that has shaped his life up to this point. As you read through the story, and as anyone that would have been listening to the story in that particular moment would have experienced, it is just very simply this. This kid wants nothing to do with his past. Nothing to do with the morality of his family. Nothing to do with God. So every Jewish listener would have heard this, and they would have immediately said, he is abandoning it completely, right? He offensively asks for his inheritance very early. His father's still alive. He's not in the grave. Um, So as I was reading this this week, I thought, well, you know, could you imagine, could you imagine asking that of your father or your mother or someone else that has included you in their will? Could you imagine sort of going to them before their death while they're still very much alive and well and saying, hey, I want it? Could you imagine being that father, a mother, a parent who relates to their children and your child comes to you and says these words to you, you are more valuable to me dead than alive. This is like a remarkable space. Now, most of us would never do what the father does, but in the context of this fictional story, right, (laughs) what does the father do? The father says, okay, take the money and run you got it, have it your way, I'll give it to you. So the son takes the money, he flees to a land that's far, far away. And again, we're meant to understand that he leaves the safe boundaries of Israel and he goes into the Gentile region. And in fact, he's living among the pigs eventually, so we sort of know very well where he's living. Um, uh, And what we're told very simply about his lifestyle is that he's extravagant. And uh, he spends it on wild living, right? Alcohol and prostitutes, we later find out through through the older son's narrative of this. So now think back to the actual context that has triggered this. The young boy affiliates and associates and assimilates fully into the world of sinners and tax collectors. But what we know of Jesus' particular moment is that they are the people that are most curious about Jesus. And they are the people that are trying to get near Jesus in his particular welcome, trying to understand what he's about and what he's doing. Now, if you were in this family, if you were a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, just a household servant, how would you be imagining this moment? What would be the feelings that are going on inside of your life as you witness this event happening? Maybe you'd feel angry. Probably you would feel at least some sense of anger because the son is so absolutely disrespectful and what he's asking, the way he's treating the father, right? This would be a natural thing to feel, but what else would you be feeling? Would you decide that you're going to mirror the cutoff that the younger son desires from his family? Would you throw up your hands and say, you're dead to me? What would be your response? What would you feel? Would it feel like loss? The story unfolds, and the younger son uh, is living it up in the Gentile world, right? But the economy tanks. (laughs) There's a severe depression, a famine in the land on that particular day. There's not enough food to go around. The guy spent all of his money. His trust fund has run out. There is no money drawer. I mean, you know, he's he's out of luck. So what do you do? Well, I'll... I'll hire myself out. In other words, what is a son becoming a servant? He's opting for the role of a slave in this land far, far away. His lifestyle has exceeded his capacity or the capacity of his barn, if you want to put it in the metaphor of last week's parable. So, So he takes up the work on a pig farm, and as he's feeding the pigs, he is himself hungry because apparently the servants in this particular farm are not well provided for, and so he sees the pods of the pigs, and he thinks, hey, this, this might fill my tummy, right? I'm, I'm a hungry guy. And it's in that context of suffering that his, you know, the, the text says he comes to his senses, right? <laughs> Which is a really interesting thing to say. What is he, what's happening for him? In other words, his view of his father's household begins to shift. So, whereas before he saw his father as sort of all oppression, no fun, I've got to get out of the dad's, my dad's household, I've got to get as far away from this community as I possibly can, what he now, in this context of his own suffering, begins to see and feel and experience is that maybe my dad's household was better than I thought, because he thinks about servants and how they're treated in that context, how they lived in that context, how they had enough food to eat, because his father was a generous man. So here, the hungry servant's son in a foreign land begins to wake up to a broader view of reality that he previously possessed. Suffering in our lives very often has that jarring effect. It is a moment that at least minimally invites us to expand our horizon, our view of what is real, the stories we tell ourselves about our lives. So the son plans to go back and basically acknowledge his idiocy, right? His sin against against his father and against heaven, against earth and against heaven. He's gonna go comprehensively say, I blew it. I got this thing wrong. And he's hoping that his father will minimally let him be not a son, but a servant in his community again. So again, imagine yourself, you're in the crowd that Jesus is telling this story to. You're a Pharisee, all right? I know you don't like that label, but let's just say for the sake of argument that you are the Pharisee, you are the scribe. In other words, you are a well-studied religious person in that community. You're listening to this story. What do you begin to feel as you hear this turnabout in the young sign? What do you begin to say to yourself? I think I might say something like, you know, finally, right, this dude's come to his senses. He sees reality in a more comprehensive way, and he's going to finally do the right thing. He's going to finally sort of come back into the community. And there's something nice about that because we like it when people recognize that they got it wrong, right? Do you like that? You've ever been in those relational spaces where you just think, if only they would get that they've got it wrong? You know, of course you've been in those spaces. I've been in those spaces. We live in those spaces. And the moment that turn happens, it's that, it's that joyful opportunity for us to say, yeah, yeah, you did. You got it wrong. And we begin to feel good about our getting it right. And we're really glad that they've recognized that we were the right voice in the room all along, Right? If you were the scribe of the Pharisee, how would you be thinking about this moment? What's interesting is that Jesus keeps talking. He keeps telling this story. You know, he doesn't stop there. It would be a really nice place to stop because this guy finally turns. He gets it, right? But Jesus keeps talking. And he tells us this interesting feature about the father. He says, you know, that the father sees his son at a distance. He sees it. In other words, you're almost sort of given this sense that the father is... Maybe daily. Maybe it's a part of his rituals. He just goes out to the, to the horizon. And he looks. And he wonders if today is a day. Yeah. Will my lost son come home today? Will it be today? The father is a longing father. When I was a, a pastor in New York City and lived around Tim Keller quite a bit, One of my favorite things that he used to say about parenting is, um, your favorite, is that a parent is only as happy as their least happy child. A parent is only as happy as their least happy child. It's a beautiful statement. What does he mean by it? He's not talking about enmeshment. (laughs) He's not talking about parents who have sort of just put such a burden on their children for their happiness. But he's talking about ordinary love, the way ordinary love works and functions in relationships. And what does that function look like? What happens when we love someone? You have empathy for them. You relate to them in a certain way that if they're joyful, you feel joy because you're, you're, you know, you're connected, you're intimately connected to them, and so their joy is your joy. It's not that you're trying to get them to make you happy, but their joy is your joy, and guess what? their sadness is your sadness because you've you've bound yourself relationally and intimately with this child and you just want their good you want their well-being and so as a parent you're looking for that so here's this father who longs for the well-being of his children he sees his son on the horizon and he does this really beautiful thing. He lets go of all of his cultural dignity, all of the beauty of his positional space in his home, and he gathers up his skirts the way you would see field servants gathering up their skirts. In other words, he gets down on the level of the servant sign who's coming back to him, and he runs. And when he finds the sign, there's such delight, there's such joy, there's such excitement. It's almost, it's interesting, I heard Marilyn Robinson do a reading, a little little reading of her book, Home, a number of years ago when she was at the Philadelphia Library, and someone came up to her at the end of the thing, and she said, you know, is Home a, a retelling of the prodigal son story? And she said, I wasn't aware the story needed to be retold. And she said this about the prodigal son. Yes, he's determined to confess his sin. He's, con- he's determined to sort of own his idiocy, but he can barely get words of contrition out of his mouth before the father is merely embracing him because all that matters is that he's home. He's here. You're present to me. In other words, the father's exuberance just takes over and it defines all reality. It defines everything he has to do. You're not a servant. I'm going to put a ring on your finger. You're a son. <laughs> You're barefoot. I'm going to put these new sandals on your feet. And, so, and we're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. You know, it is the, fattest, the fatted calf roast. <laughs> and there's this party, and there's music, and there's dancing. It's a beautiful moment that's going on. Now, Jesus could have stopped here with the story, and it would almost be enough so that the scribes, the tax collectors, right, the religious leaders, the self-righteous people, that they would begin in this moment, maybe, just maybe, to sort of realize there's a lot of beauty when sinful people repent. So these sinful people that are attracted to Jesus, that are hanging out to him, maybe I should close my mouth. Maybe I should stop grumbling about this scenario. Maybe I should stop wondering why Jesus doesn't refuse them. Because there's beauty in someone coming home. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. He calls us to imagine the least happy child. He calls us to think about the least happy child in the story. It's the elder brother who's heard that the, you know, he's heard that the party is going on. He's heard the noise of the party. He's heard the dancing. And he's, uh, he's been explained and informed that the party is being thrown because the younger son, the rebellious son, has come back home. And this older brother is just ticked off. He's just so very angry. And he refuses to go into the party. He just sits out and he sulks. I mean, you know, just so again, you're just imagining yourself inside the story. Where would you be? Would you be at the party or would you be outside sulking? I mean, you know, that's the thing these stories invite us to think about and chew on. Where would I be in this story? Would I support the grace of God that's happening? Would I resist the grace of God that's happening? The beautiful thing is that the father runs again. He goes out to find his lost son. In order to draw him in and invite him into the party and the elder son, right, he can't see the miracle of the lost and found moment. He can't see the miracle of death and resurrection. All he can do is compare and contrast and condemn. That's all he can do. It's me versus my brother it's me versus my father and it's just this is the loop that he's in inside of his head and he's perseverating on it over and over again and we discover that his deepest feelings are profoundly angry feelings in fact the moral obedient law-abiding hard-working good son feels nothing like a son and everything like a slave. And that's the story that we hear. I slave away for you and nothing. What's the point of all my obedience? And that is the sin of the church, according to Eugene Peterson. Do you relate to it? The Father's words are beautiful and equally remarkable. It's just simply this challenging assertion of what is still real, right? In the midst of this son who simply can't receive the beauty of what's happening in this moment, his response is this hard, it's this beautiful challenge. My son, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate, because he was lost but he's found he was dead but he's alive he is home come celebrate join the party the unique sin of the church self-righteousness peterson says is a denial of our lostness it is a forgetfulness that you and i are found by the grace of god alone and not by our own efforts. So let me ask us this as we sort of finish up. How does Jesus want you to take the story of the prodigal son, sons, out with you into the world this week?
0: How does he want you to
2: sit with it? How does he want it to let it mess up your world and, and destabilize your taken-for-granted world? Sometimes our lostness to God is the prodigal type, right? We give up and we run, and we just explore, and we experiment, and right? And, but sometimes it is the self-righteous elder son type, and we lean into our knowledge and our moral rigor and our self-discipline, our hard work, our goodness, our, our, the fact that you're, you're in the Reformed church, or you're in a Presbyterian church, or you're in, you know, we just put our label, slap your label on it. And we begin subtly to recognize that we are all out of connection with God,
0: whether we're sort of
2: externally running and fleeing in overt ways, or whether we're taking the deep dive internally, and we just live like slaves, we forget that God's paid His children, that we're here because of grace. We sulk away with moral superiority and we live with a sense of entitlement. And we don't recognize the God who welcomes and celebrates us on the basis of grace alone. We all struggle to support God's action of grace in our lives and in our world. Isaiah said it beautifully, we're all sinners. So what does your avoidance and your resistance of the grace of God look like? How does it show up in your life? Primarily, like what's your primary way of being and resisting and sort of holding God at bay, right? When you forget God loves you and you retreat from his love as we confessed earlier what does that look like in your life what is that temptation but more importantly how does God seek you is he scanning the horizon waiting for that turn when you you turn and you intend to confess and he holds his arms out and he welcomes you and he throws his arms around you and he puts his ring on your finger and he puts a robe on you and he puts new shoes on your feet and he says, let's have a party because you're back. Does he come out and find you sulking and just subtly put his finger on you and say, hey, son, daughter, I'm always with you. I'm always with you all that I have is yours. Can you see how he finds you? Relationship with God or anyone else in our world that we truly love, it's always a matter of grace and gift. It's never a matter of economics. It is always a matter of grace and gift. And the moment you and I begin to reduce our friendships, our marriages, our family relationships, our collegial relationships, our vocational relationships, our neighborhood relationships to a space of economic sort of tit for tat, the moment we begin to go there with it, guess what? You're losing the relationship. That's not love. So the question for us is, can we let our ego down just enough, our view of life down just enough, our view of others down just enough so that we begin to receive the reality of a God who seeks us and we become the lost that are found, the dead who are now alive, who are reconnected to God in unique and beautiful ways and who are reconnected as a result to being reconnected with God, who are reconnected to one another. Now Luke in a very disappointing style, leaves us hanging. He doesn't tell us what happened. He doesn't tell us or bring us into this moment of grand repentance of the elder brother. But we just keep reading the Gospel of Luke, and we follow the story of Jesus to its very end. And the thing we recognize about Jesus as the elder brother is that for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross, despising its shame. In other words, his love is extensive. His joy is bound up in the joy of the least happy child. So if in any way you look at your life uh, this morning or the things that you walked through this past week or the things that might happen for you this coming week and you recognize that there's this sort of deep settled unhappiness or angst, or just unsettledness about what the good life is or what you want it to be can you recognize that god your heavenly father is scanning the horizon looking for you can you recognize that his joy is bound up in your joy and turn towards him and find him welcoming you as he welcomed the younger son and as he sought the elder son let's pray together our father in heaven we uh, we really don't like giving up our view of reality we want what we want we thank you so much that you are a god who looks on us and is willing to seek us in all of those spaces however far or near we seem to be to you you're the god who comes after us so as we continue in our worship this morning would you remind us of that over and over and over again so that we come to our senses And we remember the love of our Father. And we seek you, the one who seeks us. Meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.